Dear Heavenly Father, Father, you sanctify us by your word. You wash us, it says, by the water of the word. You cause us to be cleansed by what we learn. But we know, Lord, that the cleansing process doesn't end with what we know. It must proceed to what we do. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us the instructions that lead us into all righteousness. And I praise you, Father, for the spirit who causes us to want to obey and gives us the strength to crucify our flesh. And I praise you, Father, that you call others around us who can strengthen us to do the right thing. But I ask, Father, that we would have hearts to do it. That as a body, Lord, we are mindful of the days being short, of the judgment coming soon, of the opportunities that are fleeting, of the need to be proactive, to be mindful of the eternal implications of everything we do. Let our little church, Father, be that light that you call us to be on a hill, as you say, the place that others look up to, see, and wonder why we are different. And I pray, Lord, we would be, we would be successful. We want to be useful to you, Father. We want to put what we have to work in such a way that you are glorified and that your kingdom is built. We want to look back on our life in the day that we come before you and reflect, Father, on all that we did and be content knowing we did our best. That's what we want, Lord. We pray you give us a heart for that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say there are probably as many ways to conduct a church service as there are churches. Everyone does it a little differently. Styles vary from denomination to denomination. And and even within certain traditions, you'll find variation. Individual congregations doing their own thing differently than perhaps other like-minded churches. And then, of course, there's musical styles. Let's not get started talking about that. It'll be a church split before I'm done. Musical styles have often distinguished one church from another. Or just the order of worship can be different. Or the approach to teaching. Or the schedule for how often you do the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of ways in which individual congregations can be different in how they conduct the Lord's appointed gathering. But despite all of those differences, the Christian gathering has maintained a remarkable consistency over the centuries since the Lord founded it. We have, for example, songs of praise as a universal feature, whether with instruments or without. We have prayers, whether aloud or privately. We have the Lord's Supper, whether it's every week or just occasionally. We have teaching, hopefully, from the text of Scripture, and we have the recitation of creeds, testimonies, personal confessions, announcements, collections for the saints, hails and farewells, and occasionally we'll do something out of the ordinary. But notice how much is similar between all of the ways we choose to gather as the body of Christ. This pattern is more than habit, and it's more than tradition even. It's a fulfillment of the very purpose of the gathering. We gather for the same reason that a sports team gathers for practice, because we each have a role to play, but our role is meaningless if it's apart from the rest of our teammates. We depend on the gathering for our chance to serve Christ by serving other people in our spiritual gift. It's like one hand trying to clap without the other. Like a sports team, everyone has to participate, but they have to do it in a coordinated fashion. They have to do it in a selfless manner. To make sure the team is successful. So Paul wants everyone to play their part, yes, but he also wants every part to be contributed in a healthy way, in a way that edifies. Church is no place for prima donnas. Only one person is in the spotlight in church, and that's Christ. We're all supporting cast members. We're all the role players on the team. None of us are the stars. 
So as chapter 14 ends, Paul is now ready to leave the church in Corinth with a prescription for how everyone is to get their chance to serve properly in the body of Christ. This is the idealized order of service. So to this end, his discussion now on spiritual gifts transitions out of correction, which is where we've been now for a large part of this chapter, and finally ends with new teaching explaining how the church gathering is supposed to proceed. So let's look at chapter 14, verse 26. Paul says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Paul asks, what is the outcome then? Today, we would say it a little differently, particularly if you're a teenager. You'd say, so what? So what? In other words, after all that Paul has said about spiritual gifts, the need to edify, the respect for the priority of gifts, the question still comes after all of that. Well, so what do we do now, Paul, with what you've given us? How does the body of Christ work together with its diversity of gifts to ensure that they're all coming together in the proper way to edify one another? How do we work all of this out? How do we juggle these priorities? Well, Paul answers his own question by instructing the church on how to conduct a church service properly. And his solution is deceptively simple. It's general enough. It allows this wide variety of styles and traditions, but it ensures that the service will serve its intended purpose, which is to edify believers and glorify the Lord. Let's look at it in pieces. First, Paul says, when you assemble. When you assemble. Paul starts with a simple statement, but I want you to take note. Paul never prescribes the frequency for how often this assembly will take place. Earlier, when we were teaching on the Lord's Supper, Paul said, as often as you gather. In fact, you will never find anywhere in the New Testament a prescription for the frequency of the gathering. And with Paul's carefully chosen words in chapter 11 and here again now in chapter 14, it's evident that he's going out of his way not to prescribe a particular pattern of frequency. So while there is no prescribed pattern of frequency, no one can tell you how often it should happen. I want you to notice the word Paul chose to use here, though, is when. Not if, but when. In other words, there is an expectation on the body of Christ that we gather. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there is no specific frequency for our gathering prescribed in the Bible, but we are also called by the writer of Hebrews not to forsake gathering together or to forsake the assembling together. To forsake means to desert something. It means to literally give up on something. So it does not mean to miss church occasionally. This is not a sermon about getting to church every week. That's not the meaning of these words. It means to stop going to church altogether. That's what forsaking means. It means giving up on it. Coming to the conclusion that I don't need to be in church. I can just stay at home and read my Bible. That's good enough. Again, not as an occasional thing, but as a rule. If that's what we do, we're sinning. It's not an option, according to Scripture, that we would forsake, give up on, the gathering. Instead, when we gather, Paul says. And when we assemble, Paul says, each one is to come to the building, come to the gathering, 
with the expectation that they will come with something to give or to offer to someone else for the benefit of another believer. Paul says each one has to have something. There's no option here. He doesn't say when you assemble, those of you who have something to offer, he says each has to. Not some, not few, but each. Everyone has to come with something to offer to the body of Christ. If you routinely leave your home on a Sunday morning and walk out to your car and get in your car, having no thought at all about what you're going to contribute when you come into this building on Sunday morning, then you are not meeting the purpose in you coming to this gathering. God has not got a checklist in heaven that says Steve came to church most of the time. He's good to go. No one is keeping an account of your attendance. Not here, not in heaven. Not in the sense that that's gaining you anything. Having your seat in the chair doesn't matter. How often you come and listen to me doesn't matter. It matters whether you come to serve. Can you go to your workplace and contribute nothing day after day and get away with it? Can you go to school day after day and do nothing and be successful? Can you go to a sports team and participate and do nothing and still be on the team? If you gather for anything else in life, I dare you to name one human gathering in which you can show up and contribute nothing as a rule. Well, Steve, I go to concerts. I don't have to do anything. I just sit and listen. No, you didn't. You paid for it. You had to contribute money. You had to contribute labor when you go to a volunteer service project. You have to contribute gifts when you go to a wedding. You have to contribute words of encouragement when you go to a funeral. No one gets to go anywhere and do nothing except church. Or at least that's what some choose to do. We're supposed to come and give something back to the body. Virtually every gathering of people functions only because of the contributions of the individual members assembled thereof. Church is no different. In fact, it's all the more the case, according to Scripture, that our gathering has no purpose apart from the opportunity to contribute something through your spiritual gift. That's why we gather, Paul says. When you gather... Each brings something. Now, is it your mindset that you have nothing to bring? That you're here only to receive? Let me ask you this. Next time you come on Sunday and you're walking to the car, start thinking then about who you're going to pray for while you're here. Ask yourself, who are you going to share encouraging words with who you've noticed might need them? Do you have a testimony to share? Did nothing happen to you this week that showed God in your life? Do you have a teaching to offer someone? Even if it's just in the corner of the building between services when somebody might just need a a helpful word about parenting or about how to deal with a difficult workmate or spouse. Can you play an instrument? There's an opportunity. Maybe pick up a card at the grocery store and hand it to someone who could certainly use some words of wisdom from you. Do you bring your wallet or your checkbook? That's another way to contribute. All of these things and many more that I haven't mentioned are the means by which we edify one another. If you come to service with no mind given to how to contribute, I assure you, most days you won't. But if you walk out thinking, I've got to do my part, what is my part going to be today? Then your mind is directed to the purpose, and I assure you, God will show you where that can go to work. You'll run into the right person at the right time. You'll know it's your turn. You have to discipline yourself to think that way about church. Now, it's easy for me, relatively speaking, because I've got such a part that I have to be prepared. Before I had the chance to preach here, which is a great blessing and a great honor, there was a short period between gigs, as you might say, when I was a, a member of a church but not a speaking part in the church. 
I felt like a player in the team who's been benched. If you knew you weren't going to play in that game at all, how did you feel sitting on the bench? If you've ever played a sport and you've been on a team, you know the feeling. That's how I felt every Sunday. I couldn't stand that. And it wasn't that I had to have this part. I needed something to use my gift. I felt like I had been sidelined. That's how you're supposed to feel if you're not serving in your gift. Now, that's not to say we're supposed to force our way back into the limelight. That's not the point. You know that. It's about knowing you're being fulfilled by serving in what God's given you to do. Don't ever think your participation or attendance isn't important to this gathering. It's eternally important to you and to those you serve. Now, look at the list. Paul lists examples of the different contributions that he wants people to make. Now, this is just another list. This is just another example. These are not all inclusive. We get that, right? Once again, though, it's interesting that in this list, he mentions speaking in tongues again. This is, once again, proof, as I mentioned earlier, that every list he gives in this chapter, there's only one gift that's in every one of these lists, and it's the gift of tongues because of something he'll come to in a minute. But he says, I want everyone to come with something. And then he lists examples, a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let's just look at them briefly. A psalm refers to a moment of praising the Lord in worship. And today we would say a song, S-O-N-G. Maybe it would be a poem for some of you who are inclined to write and have that gift. You might want to come with a, a praise written of your own and deliver it to the congregation. We could make time for that in the service. A teaching, that just refers to instruction, right? Whether at the pulpit, in a classroom, or one-on-one conversation in fellowship hall over donuts. It's just coming with words of instruction. Revelation, it refers to prophecy. It's a broad category, as we've looked at before, but it includes offering someone a word of counsel under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Then tongues and interpretation, that's the gift we've been studying in this chapter. Those are possibly appropriate at times as well. Even though some of these gifts have a greater potential to edify than others, nothing's excluded from the gathering. I think it's important to notice Paul included both prophecy or revelation and tongues, which are at opposite ends of that spectrum that he provided earlier. And I think he did that to make the point that there is a spectrum expected in the body. There will be things from all sides of the room put to work in the body. Everyone has a place. Every gift has a reason to exist. And so long as everything is done for the purpose of edifying the body, we want it all to be included. That's the ultimate test, by the way, of how we make decisions about whether to exclude or include something as a part of this service. It's on the basis of its potential to edify someone in the room. Can we allow drama, drama skits up here? Could we allow that as part of our service? Could we allow solo musical performances, someone who just comes up for a few minutes and plays an instrument or sings? Could we allow original songs someone has composed to be played as part of our worship service? If it edifies and it is within what Scripture provides, in other words, if it's not teaching wrong things, well then yes, of course we could allow it. And we will. In every case, the question is, did it give someone a chance to use their talent and gifts to express love for the Lord and to the body? Those are the tests we apply. But according to Paul, they're not the only tests. They're key, but there's at least one more test we have to apply when we decide how to construct the order of our service and integrate all of these various activities. And that's where he goes next. Look in verse 27. He said, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three and each in turn and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, 
he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. If you wanted to name this additional test, here's the name I came up with. This is a test of respectfulness. Respectfulness. Are we contributing our gifts in a respectful manner? And respectfulness cuts several ways. Respect to the purpose of the gathering, to the value of what we offer. Respect to the needs of others. Respect to the purpose of our gift. Respect to Christ. All of these things need to be in balance. Paul uses some example gifts here to illustrate once again. And once again, he uses the gift of tongues in this example based on his earlier list. He says, if someone in the body has the gift of tongues and they intend to contribute it to the benefit of the body, then they have to do it in a respectful way. And he defines what respectfulness looks like for that particular gift as his example. First, he says, speaking in a foreign tongue that no one can understand is only going to be helpful to us and edifying if someone can interpret that tongue, right? If I don't know what you just said, it didn't do any good for anybody. So, number one, we need an interpretation. No interpretation, no use of gift in the body. Now, here's the thing we forget. The interpretation doesn't have to be done by someone who has a spiritual gift to interpret. If the person happens to be speaking in a foreign language that someone in the room already knows naturally, that's an interpreter. So if I have the gift of tongues and my gift just happens to be in Spanish and someone in the room is a native Spanish speaker, bingo, I get a chance to use my gift because I have an ability to communicate using my gift, knowing there's someone in the room at all times who can interpret. Now, on the other hand, maybe no one in the room has a knowledge of my particular foreign language, but through the spirit, they might have a gift to interpret it. And then that's a good opportunity as well. Those things have to be in place. You see, the point is, I should know that before I open my mouth. That's Paul's expectation. Did you notice that? We sometimes tend to think of this process in immature ways. We think of the matching of a speaker to an interpreter like bingo. I'm going to throw something out and then let's see what happens. That's not the expectation. Did you notice that? The speaker is to remain silent if an interpreter doesn't exist. How do I know there's an interpreter if I haven't said anything? Because I make sure I know that before I open my mouth. How do I know if you can interpret what I'm going to say before I say it? Because I know what language I speak in, and so I can ask people, do you know Chinese? Do you know Chinese? I happen to speak in Chinese when I'm under the Spirit's influence. No one in here can speak Chinese? I'm not going to say anything then today. We've turned it into some hocus-pocus magic nonsense. It's very practical, just like all the gifts are. It's a knowledge-based gift. I know what I can do. I'm looking for someone to match up. If that matches in the room, I get to use my gift. If not, I keep it to myself. The Scripture tells me that. It's just that simple. But what's the purpose in that rule? Respect. I'm not going to hijack the meeting to start talking in a language no one can understand if it's not going to benefit anyone unless I've done my homework. I'm going to respect the purpose of the gathering. Just because I have a gift to teach doesn't mean I get to pop up in the middle of someone else's sermon if I'm sitting in the pews and interrupt somebody and start teaching. It doesn't work that way. Just because I have the gift of prayer doesn't mean I get to interrupt your prayer and say, whoa, I can do that better. Let me pray right now with you. That's not respectful. I mean, we don't do that to anyone normally, right? We need to think like that in here, too. That's all Paul's expecting. Order, respectfulness, sensibility. Notice Paul says, even if there is an interpretation involved, two, three max, he said. We don't just do this endlessly. 
That's it. No more than three. We limit tongues in the gathering out of a respect for its limited edification value. And because we have other gifts waiting in the wings to do their part. We don't want just one gift at work in the body. Furthermore, he says, notice tongues are to be done one at a time. One at a time. That means if two or more people are trying to use their speaking gift at the same time, one stops and waits for the other. Because if two people speak simultaneously, who's going to understand anything? It goes back to the purpose again, communicating knowledge, being edifying and showing respect. If you've ever been exposed to the modern version of so-called speaking in tongues, the thing that's often practiced in churches today, then you should immediately notice, based on what we just read, how they operate in direct violation of these biblical mandates. Because in what I've witnessed, and I've been in rooms where this goes on, it will typically be multiple people attempting to speak in something that they think is tongues, simultaneously, over one another, with no one attempting to interpret anything, and no one having a clue what's coming out of anyone's mouth. And the words Paul just gave us in verse 28 settle that. You don't have to go any further than verse 28 to know that that is an unbiblical manifestation. And if it is going on contrary to God's word, then you can be sure it is not the product of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit never leads us to do things contrary to the word of God. That leaves only one option. These are actions of the flesh, not of the spirit. There's no other way to understand them in light of scripture. But in case we think Paul is singling out tongues here, look at what he says about prophecy. He jumps from the one end, the low end of this scale of, of priority, and he goes to the upper end and he gives similar counsel. He says prophecy is to be limited to two, maybe at most four utterances, something in that range, right? And again, after each person speaks, the rest of the gathering is to immediately pass judgment on whether or not that person truly spoke under the influence of the Holy Spirit, whether the revelation was truly from God. Now, what passing judgment means is to discern, is this truly of God? And how would I know that? Well, first and foremost, does it comport with Scripture? If it's counter to what's written in here, that's an instant veto. That is not from God. That person should never be allowed to do that ever again. In fact, by the rules of Scripture, they are not a prophet whatsoever. They have no gift. They should never be given a second chance, according to Scripture. But if it does comport with Scripture, then we look for someone in the room to have a discerning spirit concerning whether this is truly something from God in the moment. If the judgment in the room is, I cannot discern this to be from God, then we silence that person at that point. We don't have time to play games. Paul holds prophecy to the same standard as any other gift. Is it done with respect to the gathering and with respect to Scripture and with respect to its purpose? Paul is concerned about any gift of utterance leading to chaos when it is used without the necessary respect. In the case of prophecy, Paul says, look, if a revelation is given concerning someone who is seated, and this is a very unique situation where you have someone giving a revelation who is seated. What he's talking about here is someone is standing, someone like me, standing and addressing the congregation in some manner. While I'm standing, one who is seated, that is someone who does not have the floor to speak right now, that person receives a revelation from the Lord. And that person wants to announce what they're hearing from the Lord in the midst of someone else having the floor. So let's use an example. Fred gets a word from the Lord. I'm up here. He's not expected to say anything. I'm expected to be the speaker. But he has a word from the Lord. Paul says, I am to stop talking 
and to let him have the floor just long enough to share what God has given him. Then immediately after that, the floor is to discern, is that from God or not? If it is not from God, Fred doesn't get second chances. But if it is from God, we are to take that counsel from God. This is counter to the way we typically run the service, right? No one would think that's appropriate. We would tend to think that he can't talk because I've got the floor, right? Paul's point is the spirit must be respected at all times. The movement of the spirit may be contrary to our little artificial order of worship. Our constrained little program is not the point. The point is the spirit. Now, that can lead to chaos, right? And self-evidently, it had happened in the church in Corinth. This practice had gone to the point where people were popping up left and right, speaking in tongues, talking over one another, prophesying one over another, no interpretation. It had become a free-for-all. And no edification was taking place in that kind of an environment. So Paul puts these limits. One at a time. Get an interpreter. Wait for the other. No more than a couple. Then move on. So that there was some sensibility to it. But on the other hand, don't be so wedded to your little program that if God chooses to speak through someone you didn't expect, which if you've read your Bible, he does this all the time, all the way down to and including donkeys, then you need to have some flexibility, reasonable flexibility, with checks and balances to leave open the possibility that the Lord may move in that way. If he is evidently moving, you will know it. If he is evidently not moving, you will stop it. And then you will move back into the program. Now that challenges a Bible church in my experience because if there is a charismatic end to the spectrum, then there is also the opposite end. There's the old saying that Presbyterians wouldn't swing if you hung them. You ever heard that phrase? Take out the word Presbyterian, stick in Bible church. Yeah, he's got... I deserve that, but... You stay quiet over there. (laughs) So the gathering isn't a free-for-all. It needs to remain flexible. But he says the spirits of the prophets are always subject to the prophets. What Paul means is we don't act out of control just because the spirit is working through us. The idea that when I'm in the spirit, I lose bodily control. That's not God. Prophets of the Old Testament were not robots. Prophets of the Old Testament did not act possessed. Their eyes did not roll up into the back of their head when they were speaking scripture. They walked around looking just like everyday ordinary men, except they were being abused by everyone. And they said, know this, the Lord has told me. Then they would speak what God had given them. But they weren't out of control. On the contrary, they were always in full control of their faculties. When they spoke or when they wrote, they used inspired language, but they never lost control over their mouths or over their pens. And similarly, Paul reminds the church, just because you have a speaking gift doesn't mean you've lost all self-control. If you cry out in the middle of a church service, speaking over someone else, you can't claim the spirit made me do it. That's nonsense. That's an act. Or perhaps worse, it's a different kind of spirit. The spirit has never worked that way. And he's not working that way now. We are to remain in control at all times, carefully selecting our opportunities to contribute, always with respect and according to the rules established in Scripture. If we can't conduct ourselves in this way, then we are not operating by the Spirit. It's just that simple. So Paul was correcting their notion that they might have offered defense by saying, well, we can't help ourselves, Paul. We're just inspired by the Spirit in the moment, and it's a free-for-all. And he says, nonsense. It's never worked that way. Notice he says, in all the churches. It's never worked this way. 
When it comes to the gifts of utterance, that being revelation or teaching or prophecy or tongues, Paul says, let's be careful to keep everything we do in the gathering sensible, understandable, and respectful to the Lord. Because God is not a God of confusion. He does not produce confusing nonsense displays. That is not the God we serve. There is a God of this world who does that, and it's not the one we worship. The implication of Paul's words is this. If we see a gathering, or heaven forbid should be a part of a gathering, that operates in a fashion contrary to these instructions, we simply cannot be watching something produced by the Lord, for it is not from God that such things would take place. We need to seriously consider whether that is a gathering we need to be a part of. To conclude the chapter, Paul gives one additional command to ensure a respectful gathering, and he raises some very interesting thoughts. Verse 34, he says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves Just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Wow, did we just open a can of worms there? First, notice the context. In the context of individuals contributing to the body through teaching, through utterance gifts, which are teaching, revelation, and tongues, to include the list Paul did, Paul says in that context, He excludes women from the speaking. In modern culture, of course, this raises all kinds of concerns. People question Paul's motive. Is Paul saying a woman who has a speaking gift can never use it? Or is Paul a misogynist? Did Paul have serious women issues? What was Paul's reason for writing this? And you've heard these, but truly that's been said and is said about Paul. Don't divorce his words from this context. You take these words out of context, yeah, you make him look like a pretty nasty fellow, don't you? Paul did not insert these words out of thin air. He wasn't moving along on a discussion. Then he thought, oh, here's a chance for me to knock women down a notch. And he threw a little comment in about women, and then he went back to his main thought. This is the main thought. This is in line with the main thought. He's in the middle of a line of thought teaching on how to be respectful and edifying in the context of the body. That's the point. With that point in mind, next, notice Paul has been addressing the use of speaking gifts in the context of the larger gathering. Not speaking gifts in a private moment. Speaking gifts in the context of the whole gathering. And when you speak in this gathering, your purpose always has to be a spiritual truth. Now, there's teaching as a gift, but even revelation is teaching. Even tongues is teaching when it's interpreted. It's all about transferring knowledge, right? It's all teaching at the end of the day. So it's in that context that Paul says, look, women, women must refrain from contributing to the teaching in the gathering because... Women attempting to teach men is contrary to showing respect for male authority. Elsewhere, Paul writes 1 Timothy 2.11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Did you notice in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul equates a woman teaching a man with a woman having authority over a man. They are equivalent things in the church. Anyone who teaches anyone becomes an authority over that person. Not in all matters, but concerning the matters being taught. If I teach you and you receive my teaching, then without any doubt, you have just been directed in that sense by someone else. It's the way teaching works. So teaching always implies authority. And in the proper order of the family and in the church, the Lord has appointed men to be the leaders. Therefore, Paul says to women, Do not take a teaching role upon yourself 
in the gathering when it includes men, because to do so means to assume for yourself a position of authority over those men you are attempting to teach, and that is contrary to Scripture and to the order God ordained, and therefore you are acting disrespectful to that order. And so it is contrary to respectfulness for women to teach in that setting. Notice in 1 Corinthians 14, where we just read, in verse 34, Paul says, they should remember they are to be submitted. They are to be submitted to male authority. We discussed headship earlier in this book, so I'm not going to go through all of that line of reasoning again. I won't repeat it here. But I want to just reiterate that the order for the family and for the church is God's design, and we're not free to rethink it or to change it in response to culture. There's wisdom in it. There's a reason. There's an order to things. But now let's balance this for a minute. I want to make clear what the scripture says. I've done that. We're not going to backpedal from what it says. We're not going to say, oh, it reads that way, but. No, there's no but. That's what it says. However, there is a balance to this. Paul is not prohibiting women from using their speaking gifts. In other words, if you're a woman, you have a teaching gift. You are not being told you cannot teach in church. He's only asked that we do it in a respectful way, which means in the context of the main gathering, it can't be put to work because it would be seen as a challenge to male authority. Instead, Women with teaching or other speaking gifts can exercise their gift through their husbands or fathers, if they're unmarried, in this gathering. And they can use them on their own by themselves when they're teaching other women or teaching children, those they have authority over, according to the church. Now, if that sounds unfair or limiting, I want you to remember that in most churches, if you take all the women and all the children, you have a majority of the church. So if you're concerned that you don't have a big enough audience for your gift, you have the majority of the audience Available to you. And we have plenty of opportunities to edify with our speaking gifts, whether we are men or whether we are women. In fact, we can have women playing a speaking role in the gathering so long as it doesn't become a teaching role. For example, women could perform scripture readings without commentary as part of the service. Women could sing worship songs in the service. Women could give mission updates in the service. Women can give announcements in the service. Women can offer prayers in the service. None of those things become teaching and therefore none of those things run the risk of disrespect to male authority in the church. Just in case any husbands are feeling smug at this point, because it's a temptation, I know, I want you to notice what Paul says to us in verse 35. Paul says that since wives are to be respectful to their husband's authority and use them, turn to them for their answers, then the husbands have to be ready. Men are expected to be the teachers in their homes. Husbands, if you desire a godly wife who respects your authority, then you had better give her something to respect. In this area, know your Bible, for that is your obligation. That is my obligation. Certainly, wives, you're called to know your Bible every bit as much as your husband. There is no expectation in Scripture that you somehow remain ignorant so your husband knows it all for you. That's not the expectation either. But, man, if your wife knows more than you, then you have a problem. Your problem, not hers, your problem. You need to race ahead so that when she has a question about Scripture during the gathering, she can seek your counsel, confident that you'll actually have something helpful to say to her about that matter. And ladies, if you know your Bible better than your husband, don't slow down. You keep the pedal to the metal and you challenge him to keep up. You challenge him to exceed your knowledge of Scripture because he should. Ask him to pass you by as you both pursue Christ through his word. When everyone is doing their part in the assembly with respect and according to the word of God, then this gathering will function in a beautiful and balanced way. We have latitude, but we don't have a right to work outside these guidelines. We have an obligation to serve in Christ, in love, and in edification. Let's look at Paul's summary as we finish. Paul summarizes the whole thing in verses 36 through 40. He says, Was it from you that the word of God went forth 
first? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Paul ends sarcastically talking to the Corinthians, but I think you could talk to any church with these words. He says, hey, let me get this straight. Are you the author of the Bible? Are you the only ones who have the truth? All of this came from you? No, he says. It did not come from you only. It came from God, and it's been given to everyone equally. Everyone has got exactly the same instructions. So the Corinthian church did not have the right to make up their own rules. They couldn't turn to Paul and say, oh, well, you know, we'd like to do it this way. This is just our way of doing things. Paul says, no, you don't get that right. God didn't tell Corinth something different than he told everyone else when it comes to how the church gathering is to run, and he didn't tell us either. So Paul says, if you've got brothers and sisters who are making the same mistakes that the Corinthians did, either with tongues or with women teachers or with whatever else is going on, Paul says they cannot claim to be enlightened. They cannot claim to have new revelation. They cannot claim that they suddenly figured out stuff no one else figured out. Paul says they are in disobedience to the word, and if they will not recognize the word's authority, we should not recognize them. In other words, church discipline would apply at that point. God's word has spoken on the proper use of gifts. Our brothers and sisters are under the same accountability we are. We are to separate from them for our own good and for their discipline if they will not heed what the Bible says. And Paul ends by saying, use your gifts, use prophecy, and don't despise the lesser gifts. Let them all have their place, but do it in order and with the intent to edify to the glory of Christ's name. That's what we want to do in this whole church. We won't do it perfectly, and I don't have all the answers, but we know enough already out of what we've studied to at least have the guidelines straight, right? To know what we're aiming for. We're aiming for as many people in this room doing something of value for the sake of the body every Sunday, whether privately or on this stage, and doing it consistently and watching the body grow as a result. Let's make that our goal. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the gifts that are in this body, every single last one of them. Everybody who comes, Father, you have given something we need. Everyone matters to me and to the others who gather. And we thank you, Lord, for those gifts. Don't call them a a gift for nothing. And so I, I look forward, Father, to seeing how your spirit will move amongst all of us in the coming weeks and months to use everything that is here for the glory of God, for your glory among the nations. I pray we'd be receptive, we'd be flexible and orderly and respectful. That you give us a heart, Lord, to make the right decisions on the matters that lay before us for how we want to make things better. And that you'd give us always the heart that wants to do these things for the right reasons. And let them have their intended purpose. Let us all grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then as we do that, Father, I pray we grow in numbers as well. For with new blood in the room comes more gifts. And with more gifts, Father, comes a beautiful cycle of edification. Father, I also pray a blessing on our meal that we would share today and as we go into our potluck. Ask a blessing on the food at our tables and in our conversation. We thank you for the provision. We know it came from you. We ask that you'd strengthen our bodies with it for the service that we intend to do. And all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.